Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. My name is Aram, and my pronouns are he, him. I'm the writer and producer of the Dungeons & Dragons podcast, God's Fall. My name is Dylan. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm a physicist from Canada. Welcome to Kill Every Monster. This week on Kill Every Monster, we are featuring the Quillen. Monsters of the Multiverse describes Kieran as noble celestial creatures. In the outer plane, Kieran, in service to benevolent deities, take a direct role in the eternal struggle between good and evil. In the mortal world, Kieran are celebrated far and wide as harbingers of destiny, guardians of the sacred, and counterbalances to the forces of evil. We are joined by Connie Chang. Connie is a queer and trans Chinese-American game master and narrative designer. They are the GM and creative producer for Transplanner RPG, an all-transgender, people-of-color-let, dark fantasy TTRPG show set in an original, non-colonial, non-orientalist multiverse. They are also the writer behind Godkiller, an original holy punk duet powered by the Apocalypse game for one player, the Godkiller, and one GM, God. Connie is passionate about threading queer drama with black-hearted apocalyptica and their own diasporic Chinese background. Welcome to the show, Connie. Hey, folks. Hi. Thanks for having me. Wizards of the Coast went with Kieran, but are there other names that people are going to recognize this one as? Kieran is, I think, an anglicization of Japanese or Korean way of pronouncing the name of the creature. Uh, I'm Chinese myself, so uh, I grew up calling it a Tilian, uh, Q-I-L-I-N. Uh, and it's a common, you know, mispronunciation because the, the Q noise, I think, in uh, Mandarin can be difficult for some non-Mandarin speakers to pronounce. Um, it's uh, Ti or T T T T are the different like tonal inflections of it. Um, and it's usually anglicized as like a TSI noise, like a tss, uh, which is, I think, an easier way for some English speakers to wrap their brain around. So it's a Tilian. Tilian. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty close. Yeah. Connie, what is the Tilian? Well, uh, that really depends on who you ask. If you're asking me and my personal history with the mythologies of the Tilian growing up, in China. And then when I was about nine and a half, 10 years old, uh, our family moved to the States. 
Tilin to me has always been a mythological celestial beast uh, whose appearance is very auspicious. It's a very it's it's a sign of incredible good luck. Uh, so what you said earlier about Tilian being harbingers of good fortune is is very accurate. Uh, they are good creatures, uh, even though they might look kind of scary. You know, they've got like a dra draconic kind of a visage. They've got whiskers. They have hooves. They have scaled kind of armor that almost resembles like a snake or something. And some depictions of them have quite long necks uh, because there's a there there's this whole mythology around, I think, the 15th century where a, a Chinese um, seafarer came back after traveling, I think, East Africa, uh, countries in East Africa and brought back like giraffes and other creatures that uh, were very rare in China. And the emperor of the time was like, that's a Tzilin. I don't know what the hell that is, but that looks like a Tzilin. So there are some depictions of Tzilin with long necks. Antlers typically sometimes divine flames rolling off their shoulders. Uh, and they're often also depicted as floating on clouds. Uh, in a lot of Buddhist interpretations of a Tzilin, uh, they're immense pacifists, so they float around on clouds to avoid trampling even a single blade of grass. Uh, however, that doesn't mean they're just they're just pacifists all the way. There are definitely some depictions of them where they strike down evildoers with incinerating fire. Either way, uh, lawful good, neutral good, chaotic good, however you want to like look at the Tzilin, it's definitely a, a good deity creature and, and spirit. Seems in all aspects also a rather dramatic creature. Yes. Uh, yeah, it definitely has a flair for their dramatics. When it comes, it's like, hello, my arrival has tons of sunbeams all around me. And this means a great sage or philosopher or emperor is about to be born. Witness me. Uh, I really like those kinds of depictions of Sealand too. I'm expecting like 30 or 40 horns just to go off whenever they appear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 definitely. I really do like the art in the Monster Manual for this one. It feels great. It feels very rich. It's almost like a pile of gold came to life and became this unicorn horse-like, dragon-like creature. It feels mystical. I think my only complaint there is I really do like the antlers. Like, Monsters of the Multiverse decided that we were giving it a full-blown sword out of the forehead, which still pretty kick-ass. From the very minimal reading, relatively speaking, I've been able to do, feels like a bit of a weird departure. It is. I would say it's a very westernized version or vision of of Atelian. Uh, would I'm like looking at the monster manual version of it with like the golden scales, with like the single pearlescent horn, with kind of like the cloudy wisps of uh, whiskers, uh, the big tail. It looks very much kind of just like a kind of like a gilded unicorn with some whiskers uh, like a mustache mustachioed unicorn it's a unicorn that's got scales there are definitely comparisons to be drawn between like the the western myth of the unicorn and like the chinese korean japanese vietnamese version of you know the Tilian. but you know as in there the both creatures are kind of equine in nature they both have like uh, hooves and like four legs typically and a kind of like neck and something growing out of the head, whether it's a single horn or antlers. Uh, but I think to call the Celian just sort of like a Chinese unicorn 
does do the creature um, some injustice in terms of like what it is and what it stands for. Uh, because I know there are tons of different depictions of unicorns as well and different interpretations of those myths across various like European cultures too. Uh, so there's like a wide variety of interpretations across various Asian cultures too of the Telian. Like I'm only really speaking from my perspective of, of like Buddhist and Chinese uh, depictions of it and my own like personal connection with it. It's kind of like the difference between quote-unquote Western and quote-unquote Eastern dragons. Uh, we kind of look at the Monster Manual version. We can see that, I don't know, I don't love its face. Uh, I mean, the art is beautiful. Like, the artist is, I'm not, I'm definitely not, like, dissing the artist and uh, the talent and the work of the artist themselves. We do this disclaimer in just about every episode where we wind up talking about the artist. Like, the artists are doing such a good job. Every artist in the Monster Manual is top of their game brilliant. So when we talk about the art in the Monster Manual, we're talking about the art direction. Yes, exactly. Thank you for that disclaimer, because that's exactly what I mean. It looks almost kind of like elven, like its ears are really long and its face is kind of pointed. Like it's kind of steepled and sharp in that way. The fact that most imagery I've seen of it has been statues and a lot of those sort of almost temple guardian type statues tend to be a little bit more boxy. Having this sort of very narrow structure to it doesn't hit my brain right. Yeah, I would say that the Monster Manual Kieran is a, it's it's like a twinkified version of the Celian. Like with the Celian's kind of like a, I don't know, like kind of stout, almost like a bear. And this is like a twink version of it, right? Yeah. I think my biggest, honestly, my biggest gripe is there. it doesn't have fangs. Uh, I have a tattoo. You can't see it in the podcast, uh, but I have like a, a kind of quarter sleeve of a Celian that I got my first semester of college. Uh, and it was really important to me. It's cool, by the way. It is kick ass. Thank you. Uh, that I use like reference images uh, that felt like it, you know, like I, I wanted a kind of Celian that resonated with me. And if you look at kind of like the head and the face of the tattoo that I have, I'll just describe it with word word language. Uh, you can see like kind of fangs fanning out from its mouth. You can see these like long, almost like catfish like whiskers coming out of its nostrils. These two like sharp stag or deer like antlers coming out. Um, it has ears, but it's more like, you know, the ears aren't the focal point of its face, which I feel like yeah. they kind of are uh, for the monster manual version of it. Uh, and it does have like a beard and, and fur, right? But uh you know, kind of it's it's flamed and its tail is like a curling cosmic fire in, in my uh, tattoo version of it. Between the whiskers, between the fangs and that really interesting tail, those parts seem to be what was needed for this to really look like the creature. And also, yeah, absolutely. It feels more like a bear, like, like it's stout. It can take a hit. It looks like a tough creature. Yeah. What's interesting is the Monster Manual version of it definitely looks celestial, right? It looks like like kind of like a little angel, like a, you know, like a golden unicorn. Uh, but what I love about the, the Tilian, what drew me to it in the first place when I even was a child is how fearsome it looked. It looks like it can do some damage, like it can rip you to shreds, like it, it's like, rah, like it's there, like a guard dog. Um, but that contrasts with its very gentle and like, nature right it's very gentle celestial like i will punish evildoers like scorch the earth uh for good nature which i liked right it wasn't just like oh i'm like soft and you know whatever which i think is kind of like the uh, mainstream depiction of a unicorn like these like beautiful white horses with a single horn and they go and they just gallivant around they look beautiful and they are beautiful whereas like the telian to me looks fearsome but is beautiful and that's what draws me to it it's like it looks like a 
beast. Yeah. Like if you didn't know, like if you have the mythology of it, if you know, like, oh, this is a sign, like this is auspicious, this is wonderful. If that thing came out of the woods, you know, you're walking through a clearing and you think like, oh, look, a unicorn's coming in, and that son of a bitch wanders out. <laughs> I'm leaving. Fuck this. It's gonna be scary, but once it calms down and the sunlight catches those aqua scales with this, like, like I'm looking at an image with neon green fur and aqua scales, flame red spikes on the back and flame red actual like flame looking parts coming off the legs like wings and hooves and bright yellows. Like the colors alone would be stunning. And I imagine it would yeah. be kind of like that pearlescent of like a snake or a dragon. So they would shine. They would be amazing. They strike me a lot like they kind of sit where the Koat sits, this gorgeous creature of good that is also unbelievably powerful, should it choose to be. The Koatl honestly has some interesting abilities with the sleep stuff and it can walk into dreams. Kieran are meant to do a good murder. Like that... Its lowest stat in the line is it has two 16s, plus five strength, plus five charisma, plus five wisdom, plus four intelligence. Dex and Con are both plus three. Like, if a player came to me with that stat line, I'm sending them home. This creature is smarter than your, than your players. It is tougher than your players. It is faster and stronger than your players. It has them beat in every category. So it has the ability to do, you know, just sacred flame at will. It's like 3d8 plus 5 radiant, which, you know, smiting evil with holy fire checks out. The thing that strikes me as an interesting choice was they typed the antler and the hoof damage as well. Like that's not bludgeoning and piercing damage. It's force and radiant. And the hoofs have a 15 foot reach. So like it's like shooting things out of its hooves. Wait, what the fuck? <laughs> Yeah, they give a 15-foot range on the hooves. That's interesting. But it's it's only a large creature. I, look, look, I don't know. They don't explain it. I'm assuming it's got little force extensions on their hooves. And it's like boxing, like pow, pow, pow. Maybe that's their excuse is like, it's sort of like the walking on clouds thing. It does force damage because it's punching so hard that it's actually just the air coming across, you know? It's not making contact with you. It wouldn't even touch a blade of grass. Does any of this light up, Connie? Like, is any of this sensible for the actual creature? <laughs> I mean, what I think is really interesting about the Celian when it's mapped onto a stat block is you then sort of see what the designers are attracted to. Uh, if I were to write a stat block for the Celian, I think I would take it in a very different direction. And it's interesting that th these are these are the things that I think the designers you know focused on it makes sense like a hoof a horn a sacred fire attack these specific spells for spell casting um it's particular legendary actions one of them being smite for one of one of the three attacks it has um makes sense i think it's pretty it's a pretty standard uh fifth edition way of statting out a, a, a telian uh i actually kind of like the the range on the hoof uh i think that lends to some interesting narrative moments of like a player thinking it's out of melee range of this 
large creature and then it just does like a mantis shrimp jab and like breaks the sound barrier or something and hits you like across the battlefield i think that's pretty i actually really like that um and i do like the damage typing for hoof being force and horn being radiant that actually i actually really like that piece of design um i think that's a cool choice it's nice that the creature has options it's Interesting, too, because it does say, you know, large celestial, typically lawful good. What's always interesting to me for the monster manual depictions of, like, culturally resonant mythological creatures is it's interesting to think that this is, like, a a creature that can be encountered and then killed for experience points, uh, because that's also just, like, not... Like, definitely not my relationship to this kind of creature at all. Like, it doesn't even feel to me like something that should be able to be killed or should come out to, like, do something messed up or, like, that a Atelian could be chaotic evil outside of something corrupting it, right? Or, like, something driving it to act in a way that is counter to its nature, which is kind of how... I have run Telian in my own campaign uh, with the second stranger on Transplanar RPG. I do have a Telian in the show uh, that is corrupted, that does some messed up stuff in one of the PC's backstories, which was really fun for me to run because I love exploring divinity in my work and exploring the corruptions and perversions of divinity as well. And like to do that in a way that's culturally resonant to me through the Telian. We've got to revivify. We've got some dispel effects, calm emotions, create food and water, wind walk, which is a great thing to have when you can fly. At will, major image at six level. That's no joke. Is there something about these creatures always being able to like show you something or project some imagery? Not in specific mythologies, I can recall uh but telian are i mean they are celestial emissaries they are divine spirits uh they can do basically pretty much whatever they want to do you know what i mean so it makes sense to me that they'd be able to cast the spell six level at will that they can just sort of like spawn visions of like a beautiful utopia or something around them or like it seems like they can like alter reality at will when they enter like the material plane right from wherever they're from if it's associated with destiny i expect more like buffs or like divination effects having it something like god what's the name of the uh portent that uh that divination wizard ability where you just like give someone like oh no no you rolled an 18 now Mm -hmm. i expect Expect more of that kind of thing, but this Kieran very much feels like an instantaneous creature. It wasn't there last session, it won't be there next session, it just does stuff while it's here. Yeah, it definitely feels like a random encounter, Kieran, a little bit. There are rules, I think, in the stat block for like lairs, uh, lair actions and regional effects and whatnot. They are, and it's the weirdest lair actions I've ever seen. <laughs> you finish your thought, but I just want it out there that we're going to get into that because it's... <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to do a deep delve here. Such a strange set of choices. It is it is interesting, <laughs> is what I'll say, Um, because there's, there's nothing quite here that I'm seeing that like bestows blessings uh aside from like i guess greater restoration which is less about bestowing an act of blessing and like healing a curse or something that is happening to another character yeah because to me what speaks to me about Atelian is it it arrives when big boom shit's about to pop off it's a herald of big things about to come 
to extrapolate this and like fantasize, you know, beyond it as well. Like maybe uh, Tilian come when to mark the end of a great period of darkness, or they come as like a beam of hope in a post-apocalyptic campaign. Like you see a Tilian in the middle of a wasteland, you're like, oh shit, that's hope. That is the embodiment of hope. And I would want the Tilian to be able to do something really badass, really affirming and extremely narratively helpful. When you're thinking about ways to fold a Tilian into your campaign, I actually think it has a lot of value in a dark fantasy campaign, honestly, in horror campaigns as well, when PCs are kind of like shit out of luck. And not a deus ex machina, because that I think takes player agency away, but like a helping hand, right? Extended into the darkness. That's kind of what a Tilian can be. And on the flip side of that, similar to what it seems like uh, the Coedal episode was kind of about, you can sort of like twist a Tilian's appearance, especially if there's already established mythology in your world about what a Tilian is. Like, oh, heralds of good, like divine emissaries. If you see one um, rabid, like foaming at the mouth with these like black veins of corruption uh, rattling underneath its like divine auspicious scales, there's something, like, there's something messed up there. And that's kind of interesting. Not a great sign. And you need to fix that. Exactly. If your party sees that, you know you need to fix that. So I, you know, there are very rare situations, I think, in which I just play a Tilian at face value, uh, just because I don't think it's necessarily very interesting that way. But maybe that's a good transition into, into the player actions that are here. At face value, it's kind of like an extended long rest. Mm-hmm. Imagine if a long rest could punch a motherfucker. <laughs> So, Connie, are Kieran monsters? <sighs> yeah, yes, yes. Uh, it is an enthusiastic and resounding yes from me. I actually love that question because I feel like there are so many assumptions, uh, not assumptions in a bad way, uh, but there's a lot of like subtext behind that question, right? Uh, because to me, a monster is not something to be afraid of. A monster is not even something that is necessarily evil. Monstrosity and monsterhood shines a flashlight on things that society deems taboo. When we look at the ways that monsters have been constructed in, let's say in like Western, in American history and American society, on one edge of the blade, uh, thinly veiled depictions of marginalized people, right? So this is where we get into the whole conversation of like, are orcs racist, right? Like that whole conversation, like is the monster, you know, of the orc, like a, a racist, uh, you know, and in some ways like minstrelized depiction or a metaphor for black people, for indigenous people, for Asian people, for Mongolian people, et cetera. And I would say, yes, if we just look, if you just look at the context, if you just look at the evidence that's there, if you look at the history, like, yes, it's- You check the words that are written down next to the word orc. Yeah. It's pretty obvious, right? So on one hand, I think, you know, monstrosity is a double-edged blade. So on one end of the blade, there's the blade that cuts down. There's the blade that says, the Hadazi, right? Let's look at, just look at the Hadazi. That's still a monstrous race that has a lot of issues, right? So that's one, one edge of the equation. The other edge of the equation for me is where I, and I think a lot of other queer and trans and marginalized people find a liberatory means to explore our own identity uh, through monstrosity. By embracing the darkness, by embracing the grotesque, by embracing the ugly, by embracing the thing that is deemed inherently unlovable, we take 
the ability to create what it means to love, what it means to be beautiful, what it means to be vicious and scary, and we rewrite that on our own terms. That's why there are so many queer monster fuckers. That's why there's so many, like, no, seriously, so many queer and trans and like marginalized um, tabletop uh, roleplay game players and GMs who are like, let's be the monsters. Why do you think Vampire the Masquerade is so fucking popular, queer. right? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, especially among queer people. It's because we get to be the, you know, the the vampire that punches a, a priest's head off in an explosion of blood. Uh, hello, Catholic trauma. Uh, hello, reclaiming our Catholic trauma, right? And like, claim that yes, I am everything that you are afraid of, and I find that beautiful. Like, yeah. maybe being trans, maybe being queer, maybe being a person of color isn't such a bad thing after all. Maybe it isn't like. Uh, a crime maybe it isn't terrible and maybe it is and maybe that's beautiful uh because you call me a monster and i say that that's radiant and i say that that's divine uh, so from that perspective yes uh, i think a celine is a monster because i think a monster is a beautiful thing to be connie how would you change the Kieran in fifth edition. I'd take away the stat block. I'd write a couple of moves. I'd write a couple of things it can just do. And I wouldn't worry too much uh, about like the specifics, about like the like the the feet, uh, or you know, like the the specific granularity of of the saves or like the to hit modifiers. You know, it's 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 vibes. Uh, I might write something like uh, divine blessing. Uh, choose a PC to bestow a blessing upon, and there can be some mechanical boon to this, either, like, they get, uh, the, here's the boring version, they get, like, a, a an advantage to use on whatever role they want for the next, like, week or something. That's the boring version. Uh, like, a slightly less boring version is instead of advantage, they can get an autocrit on, like, a role of their choice, and an even less boring version is we pair that mechanic with, like, an actual narrative boon. Like, once you're divinely blessed, uh, like, you emit a kind of like aura that makes people stop and stare at you. Like, tell me what aspect of yourself becomes unforgivably beautiful, right? And then that prompts the player to take that into their hands and co-create a little bit uh, what this blessing might look like. And that would be how I would like approach a redesign of the Celian. I'd like root it in the narrative and I'd think, how can I invite my players to co-create and like co-imagine in this space with me uh, in a way that will like push the story forward, if not necessarily alter things on a character sheet. Uh, but that's also, I think that's just like a, a completely different philosoph philosophy in approach to how I play D&D versus how a lot of other people play D&D. So if you're listening to this being like, that's bullshit. I mean, you know, like fair, like fair to you maybe, but like this is what works for my tables. <laughs> I think that's the better way to handle it, though. I, I've sort of advocated for things like this before, but I think if you're going to give something like Tetsilin a full-blown stat block, it should be buried in an adventure where the point was that you are going to fight and kill this monster at the end. That shouldn't... This is one of the monsters that doesn't feel like it should just be on the table as a potential murder victim having things where it's like, these are tools for you to incorporate it into the campaign. This is a way you could interact with it. But this thing is borderline a god. You can't fight mm -hmm. it. You're not allowed to. Which also ties in really great to you because the boons they give are the narrative criticals, which I love. I just, just thinking of that makes me so happy. But they're giving you a narrative critical, which is a, as you said, it's a huge 
thing. It's much bigger than just having advantage on your next roll, which seems awful small for a creature this magnificent. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it is, it is like a, I think it does do the, uh, the Telian a disgrace uh, if it's just kind of in a book of things that, that can be killed, uh, which I also just, I just also just generally speaking, like, just don't like that approach to D&D and to running any sort of RPG, right? Like, oh, here's a, here's a book of things that you can fight and conquer. Like, I think that's a very, I don't know, it feels like a really, honestly, like, colonialist approach to gaming uh, yes. and I'm, I'm gonna actually plus one what glaza said or said even though uh, i know they're not here uh yes the monster manual is a book of boyfriends uh, i am gonna plus one to that <laughs> i'm gonna retweet that i completely agree with that um i don't think i've ever run a session of DD where i've just sort of flipped open the monster manual picked like took up like let's say a vampire and threw it in for my players to kill like i always think about like the deeper implications of uh session design and i also just don't like random encounters generally speaking as a gm there I, I just don't enjoy them a fight has to mean something it has to because it's so hard in DD. yeah and if you're gonna take that much effort and that much time it better mean something they should always ask or answer a question and that question cannot be why are we having this fight Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. It is not quite a dark and stormy night. There's a lot of shadow coming in through the clouds, but you still go get those little the things that everyone always refers to as god rays those little beams of sunlight where you can tell this either is just starting and the sun is going to get completely swallowed or something just ended we're going to look in at a mountainside this is fairly high up basically the last major plateau there's a little bit more to the mountain but you can't stand on that bit it's pointy this is the last actual plateau before the peak. Huge, overlooking, honestly, God knows what, because the denser, the heavier clouds are below you by now. You know there's a town out to the north. It's small. There are farms surrounding it. There's a forest out that way. But it is academic knowledge today. There is stone and cold and wind and a tiny little owl man before i do anything i'm going to use my portent ability when i woke up from my long rest uh i rolled two d20s 
which I have a 14 and a 19. So I'm just gonna put I'm just gonna put those here. Now at any point I can use those in in replacement of another die during this adventure because my character can manipulate some of their fate. They've gotten powerful enough to, to be able to kind of bend the strands around them, but that's not quite enough. They want very, very much to weave those strands themselves and believe they are owed this by the universe. They think that they have earned this right from the many years that they have spent investigating and researching. And so I'm feeling pretty good today, I would say. It's the usual deal. When you learn the rules, when you find a loophole, that clearly makes it your right to exploit the loophole. Otherwise it would not exist. Yeah. It would be foolish to see such a loophole and not take advantage of it. You have, over the course of possibly days, because you are not physically robust. No. Uh, and also, uh, despite like a foot and a half. being a tiny owl man, uh, you don't fly. I do fly. You do fly? Yes, it's not, I don't fly fast. Okay. I have a speed of my walking speed, so I can fly at 30 feet, but okay. I do fly silently. You are an owl. I am an owl. Okay, so now we've explained how you got up here at all in the first place. Because if this were a climb, you would be dead already. Right, I imagine the wind whipped me around a bit. I want you to tell me what your first little bits of setup are. You got up here, apparently you took a rest once you got to the top of the mountain. Sound, honestly. Not like the most comfortable place to rest, but I get it. I can perch, you know, I'm good. Tell me what your first little bit of setup here is and tell me what your goal is. You want to tug on the strands of destiny, which is a phrase that means fucking nothing. Much like I am not old. Yeah, you are. But I'm not young. I'm at that age where I'm starting to see the slightly past middle point of my life and perhaps looking at things and thinking, if I could redo that, if I could redo this, if I could undo 20 years, right? Just if I had that extra mm -hmm. 20 years, I could really have made something grand. That's where I'm at in my thought process now. And no matter how much I do the math, I can't get to where I need to be with the time I've got left unless I make a grander play. And with all that I've learned up until this point, I have learned that these things are possible and they happen to people and they seem to happen to people mostly randomly. But as I've proven, nothing is truly random in this universe. And there's no reason why I can't nudge the probability of a miracle. I'm, I'm very meticulous, so clear, dead brush out of the way, I would, you know, sweep away some dust, maybe make a nice little offering, whatever I would do, you know, just, just like a nice amount of time to have the place look. I, I want to be respectful, is what I'm saying. So, as a complete aside, I do kind of love the idea of someone saying, no, destiny, events, how a given choice is going to turn out is never truly random. 
in this world of dice. Very explicitly, yeah, it is. <laughs> yes, it is, but I've learned tricks. Like, like one of my main abilities is literally to roll two dice and then be able to substitute them whenever I I want. Like, like yeah. I've literally, the abilities I have manipulate fate directly. Are less probability, yes, I, under, I agree. I can almost see the dice, like I'm getting close. I'm not quite transcended yet, yeah. but I can almost see him. Connie, when someone puts in the effort to summon a killing, what does that entail? What is it that entreats a being that normally functions so much just on its own? So the ancient texts contradict each other about the correct ritual you must perform, the sacraments you must offer, the gems and the exact coins and the exact incense you have to light. But across all of your research, you have found one thing to be consistent, which you suspect strongly is the linchpin of all these rituals. You must offer a desire as pure as jade. In offering up, Am I interpreting this as offering up something that I will then lose or simply burying myself and being honest? The interpretation is open. There have been accounts of people who have offered things like their firstborn child, you know, like their greatest dream that they've never told anyone. And whether or not those offerings were taken, those accounts have been lost to time. Okay, he wants the time and the fate to angle so that he can accomplish these great things. And what he's willing to sacrifice is all knowledge that he was the one to accomplish them. He just wants to get the things done. He doesn't need the credit. That's what he's willing to say. He wants the credit. Everyone wants the credit. Like, like it, it stings. And because it stings, he thinks that that will be sufficient because he knows it has to hurt. And it also has to be appropriate. So he thinks he's covering both bases. There are bits where, quite frankly, it's academia just winning out over necessity. This is a summoning, so there is a circle. That is not called for in any of the books, but goddamn, if you're going to summon a thing and not draw a circle. Also, I'm a bird, so the barrow is going to be elaborate. Like, <laughs> like, there's a lot of extra effort to make this look nice just out of instinct. This is a wizard nest. <laughs> but also up here, it's not, there are no candles to this. You're of sufficiently high level. There are basically small stones, little pieces of quartz that as you begin to move through and sort of refine this circle, energy, just ambient the little bits of lightning left in the clouds, the wind whipping through, cycles through this almost prayer wheel of arcane energy and siphons into those stones and they start to glow like the beads of fire at the end of a wick and just lift up into the air. And in the middle, you have what is functionally a creative art project uh, combined with your offering you have a hourglass of fairly mundane nice but plain make into which through the top through the little wooden top you've added an additional 
layer to, an extra bulb. And while the middle, what was once the top, but is now the middle, is nearly empty of regular sand, a fine trickle of jade dust is falling down into it, replenishing what was lost. Yeah, that's cool. I'll go with that. Awesome. And that's the thing is we keep like a regular, like I said, standard wood and glass, like kind of a yellow beachy sand. And then there's that extra layer wrought in like perfect crystal with gold on the side of it, holding it steady. It is ornate. It is beyond. It is celestial. Aram, you gotta do some sort of magic words. Do uh, I will? Hang on, hang on. I'm sure I've got. Doesn't have to be a spell. Uh, you don't have to look through your. I mean, like I want you to tell me what the action is that invokes the ritual. I will have laid out uh, the various papers. I've made the circle. I've said the appropriate incantations, right? And I think the last part of this would that I would activate my third eye ability, which once per short rest, I can use my action to choose one of the following benefits, which lasts until I am incapacitated or have a shorter long rest. Dark vision out to 60 feet, or I can see into the ethereal plane. And I think that that's what I would activate. So basically an ability to see past this world and into another plane. And that would be the last part I would need to make the connection. Okay. As long as it's within 60 feet. That bright shaft of light increases in intensity, transforming from just a translucent crystal ray to a pure golden dazzling radiance. And it shoots through this thick cloud cover and lands smack dab in the middle of that summoning circle, uh, almost like it's a red carpet being rolled out for a very important noble. The mist beyond the cliff, it's just fog. You can't even see the bottom of this mountain that you spent two days climbing up. Just an ocean of white. The mist thickens and then darkens as stepping out from this ocean of fog is a Telian. As it lowers its huge antlered head into this shaft of light, you see a creature that exudes a kind of divine presence that rivals those of gods. Its face looks like the face of a dragon, full of sharp, pearly white teeth and eyes that are like burning hot golden coals in the pits of their sockets. Those two huge antlers, like the antlers of stags, uh, and hooves instead of claws, hooves like a deer's as well, and a body that is both lion-like and scaled like a dragon might have. Most notably, there are heatless flames wicking off of its shoulders and in place of its tail, uh, fluctuating in iridescent coloration between red, blue, white, and purple. Just every time you blink, the flames are a different color. And as they step forward into the summoning 
walking circle, you see clouds thicken around their feet as they take care not to trample over even a single blade of grass at the top of this plateau. And as they stand before you, this creature is like maybe 12 or 15 feet tall, I think, by the top of the head. The horns add another like three feet. Uh, it looks down at you with those burning golden eyes and clocks its sharp fanged mouth to the side to regard you. And when it speaks, its voice rings in your head like a choir of angels, though its mouth does not move. Okay, well, I'm a foot and a half tall, so... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you get the sense that this thing could, like, trample you with its hooves if it wanted to. Greedy! And then I would, like, fly up, like, to, like, a ledge maybe 10 feet high, so I'm still looking up, but not quite so high. Big, huge bow, big feathery wing. Greetings, and, and I am trying to hold my shit, because I knew, I knew what to expect. I'd done the research. I'd seen the drawings in person. It's quite a different thing it's quite a different thing indeed and i did not plan on it being quite so large so i would fly up and i would bow and greetings it's so kind of you to make an appearance how may i regard you little mortal you may call me temperance I have heeded your wish, a desire as pure as jade. Speak unto me the vision you seek to reify. As plainly as I can, Great One, I seek another 20 years to make something great that will benefit people. And I sacrifice their knowledge of me doing it. I will have no claim. My name will be forgotten, but this thing I do, this thing will be great. A noble desire, forgotten under the waves of time. What do you seek to do? What great act shall you perform? He thinks for a long time. The moment there is a pause, the thing that I think washes through temperance is the realization of I don't want to direct you too strongly but quite frankly pettiness that would be immortal bothering to bring you forth and not actually knowing what they wanted that they could crystallize that desire so supremely so perfectly to manage to make it call out to you and yet still not know what it is is astonishing. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's even any hesitation causes this Celian to cock its huge, like, golden head to the side as it regards you. A mind such as mine simply needs the time in order to discover the thing. I, 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 I sense I'm running short of that time. I am being robbed of it, if you would. With this extra time, I can conceive of this great thing. Well, surely you have some imitation of an idea, perhaps a verb? Would you like to help a kingdom, protect a regent, usher in a new era of knowledge? This is the problem, Great One. So many of these things can be undone. 
by magic, by other gods, by powers. No matter what I do, it can be undone. It can be reversed. It can be perverted. I suggest this. Every mortal creature born has an allotment of life. For every good thing they do, they gain a week. For every bad thing they do, they lose one. No one knows this is happening. No one except me. So you wish to become unto a god to determine what actions are worthy of adding life and which are worthy of detracting it? Is this your desire? I would have no power over this. I would simply be an observer. I would be able to see what no one else could see. I can see all the strings. I could see all the paths. Little one, what do you think being a god is? Making things happen that I could not, which is, of course, why I called you. What is your name, little one? My name is Valen, Deep Huge Bow. Valen. What makes you think you are the one worthy to architect this new system of life and death? I believe I'm fair and I believe in my desire to not act, to merely observe. Things will happen as they will. It is not my job to put a feather on the scale, just, but I do wish to see it. I do wish to understand it, to peek beneath the curtain and to make sure, of course, everything's running fairly and no one is interfering. Why not conduct an experiment of this using a demi-plane and illusions. Why must you exert this upon reality? What is wrong about the way things currently are that you wish to upturn the entire system of celestial order? I can show you the suffering. For a moment, his bravado peels away and there's an actual sadness in his eyes. The world is cruel and frequently run by people who are cruel and have power and money and live long lives because of it. A system like this would balance that. I think your intentions, little one, come from a place of goodness and perhaps from a place of pain as well. But every decision the gods make, where to place a tree, whom to bless with power, what path a child might take, every single little decision generates immense consequence. The river of fate flows in a direction that not even the gods always know where it goes. What you propose could have devastating ramifications for the world. Ramifications none of us could have foreseen. Perhaps then, a contest? A contest? You suggested we make a smaller scale, a trial run, if you would. Perhaps there is some contest we can come up with to see which one of us is correct. Very well. A simulation. And 
Temperance the Telian kind of rears back on their hind legs. The clouds thicken around their hooves and lift them up into the air. As you feel strings of magic around you tighten and bend, and that god ray fans out and takes up this entire peak. Like your eyes are blinded by it. It's so bright, it's so golden, it's so... And then it fades down and you and Temperance are in a completely different place. Were Valen to come up with an idealized test, what would it look like? Valen is, after all, a scientist. So I think that what Valen would want is that Valen would want a dozen twins, a dozen sets of twins, okay? And onto one of these twins, they will live normally without this system in place. And the other twin will live with this system in place. If it's a human, they got half their lifespan, 50 years. And for every good thing they do, they get a week. And for every bad thing they do, they lose a week. We're playing Civilization. And we press like the, the fast forward button. <laughs> That's kind of what I feel like I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. That's the way a scientist would do it. Someone with limited power. You'd have to find twins. You have to do twin studies. You don't have to do twin studies if you're a weird god deer dragon thing. You're in charge of stuff. You watch a small town. Big enough that someone has to be in charge. You know, there, there's a barony but still not a city by any means. And your focus breaks just a little bit. You can't see it properly. And you close your eyes and you rub them and one of them opens and you can see it crystal clear. And then you close it and the other eye opens and it's not the same. Right. And you flip back and forth as the first few years the smith and their partner have a child. You watch that child start to grow. You see a stable hand starting to really learn and master all of the trade, starting to get ready to kind of take over running the shop. Now this is very much not what Dungeons and Dragons was made for. It's not Dungeons and Dragons at all. No, I have no idea how to run this, but I'm fascinated by the concept. I have an idea, if I may. Uh, oh, please. Please. As, as you watch this like little village, this microcosm of your idea, right? It's, it's based off of an existing governmental, economic, right? And social system from this world, right? So we see this little barren, right? We see, we see a town that has like, like poor folk and then like, but okay to do artisan and merchants and then like fewer nobles and then like the baron at the very top, right? Who has to tithe to the king who's not in, in this microcosm, but there it, it's, it's related, right? He's beyond the fog of war. Yes. It's glowy. And if you try to walk that far, then a thing flashes across your eyes and says, turn around. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the first version of this that we see is a is the normal version, right? We just see this town do its normal thing. You see people live, you see people die, right? You see orphans and street urchins running through the streets, right? And like 
ground their way up the criminal underworld until they become the leaders of the ring that they used to serve and act as spies for, right? We see the Baron kind of get rich with co corrupt money, right? In, in cahoots with the Thieves Guild, like classic D&D stuff, right? It just kind of runs, it just kind of goes, right? It's, it's not anything that's necessarily surprising to you. Maybe like a wayward party comes in here or there, causes a ruckus, gets really drunk at the tavern, you know, like chases out a hidden werewolf, that sort of thing. And then we see the version of the village that has your um, morality mapped to it. And like, just as we go maybe 50 years, it looks great actually, because all of the thieves guild people die out very quickly. <laughs> like they immediately, like thieves guild is gone within like 30 years, right? Because they're, the people who were running it just die, right? The Baron sees this reforms. He starts doing good things. He starts throwing feasts for the people. He starts like giving people presents and gifts and like lessening the taxes, right? The ad adventurers who come in are incentivized not to be murder hobos, right? Like, and at first it seems like it's working, right? All the, all the, ostensibly bad people are, are dead or gone and everyone left after like 50 years seems to be good right and i think there's a moment there's a pause here as we're looking at these two simulations where you get a chance i think you and this healing both are kind of floating like godlike beings over these simulations you get a chance to talk to each other i'm trying to gloat right but i am kind of like you know my little owl head spins in a full circle and i'm like see see this is lovely yes Yes, well, 50 years later, and it does appear that all of the evil has been vanquished. But look a little closer, if you will. And I think one of the first things you notice is that in this town, the 60-year-old Baron, who was in charge the day that everything started, the reformed man, is living a hale and hearty life at 110. Man who had no need to worry, who was able to just on a dime change everything. And every time he offers, you can see the counter, you can see the threads. You can see every time he goes out and offers food to the community. The trick in it is magnitude. You watch him hand food to a child and you see his lifespan go up a week and then you see him offer food to the parents and it goes up a week and it goes up a week and up a week and, up a week. and you see at 95 quite a fucking long life the smith lay in his deathbed a good man surrounded by his family but he still left only ever able to offer little things here and there to people as they came through. You watch him die. And the Tealing goes on to say, now peer behind the curtain with me. And we see the Baron alone. You know, he's dining with his beautiful husband and his kids who will live forever ostensibly because they have all the resources they need to do good things uh and the baron is saying so there are these rabble-rousing troublemakers coming into town talking about liberate the means of production give everyone the ability to do good things well 
We lose, what, 10 years if we kill someone? And what, we gain, I'll gain, what, 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 30 if I throw a huge feast and, and make sure that all the babies are blessed by the gods? Yes, let's just do that. Let's kill these five adventurers and I'll throw the big feast and I'll still live. And then we like kind of pull back out um, from this. And the Teelan turns to you and says, In any system, there are always loopholes. There are always little areas of weakness that mortals, as mortals are wont to do, will seek to exploit. When we try to weigh individual action and tie it to life and death, not only do we give those who don't have as much as others a poor starting hand, but we also prevent them from growing. All those orphans who died so quickly because of their associations with the Thieves' Guild, they never had a chance to change. Hmm. So Valid is getting frustrated. Valid has spent 20 years of their life getting to this point and can't back down now because doesn't see a path out. And so Valen is frustrated because the logic is hitting home, but there has to be a way to salvage this. Well, then it needs to be proportional. Obviously you can't just buy your way out of things. There needs to be qualifications of good. Someone needs to decide what is truly good and selfless and what is not. And this again is why an observer who is impartial, of course, needs to be in charge. All I see here is more need for my gentle feathered hand to guide this program. Because as you see, it is very close to the utopia we seek. Part utopia is better than none, wouldn't you say? So what rules would you put in place to make this a true utopia? Ah, well, we would look into the motivations of such things. When someone is living an extraordinarily long life, perhaps I would be alerted to it and I could read the file and maybe make some personal judgments. Add the mortal touch back into the god system and therefore I could make the proper qualifications on who is actually good. You feel it when it hits your ears, the fact that he's already started referring to this as the gods system. No, it isn't. The Celian turns its head, regards you intensely and silently. So, let's take this Baron as an example. Knowing that he plans to kill these five adventurers who come into town, what would your punishment for him be? Instant death? Well, if we're to fix it at this point, I suppose we'd have to make some harsh adjustments to show people that there's slightly new rules in place. But if I was able to then control it from the start, he would simply have been excluded. Some of his good deeds may actually count. Most of them, I believe, are selfish, though. You have to be altruistic in your good deeds. Your good deeds must be done without expectation of reward. Otherwise, they are null and void. Little one, what makes you think you are the first to have come up with this idea? Perhaps not the first, but I've gotten quite far, I believe. I don't know if I did my research. I hadn't found anyone who had gotten to this point, frankly. Allow me to show you a glimpse of your Eden. 
One of the first things that happens, the simplest, the tr most trivial example, is this exact timeline. Shot forward 300 years. That Hamlet in one eye is slightly larger, has been bolstered by trade, has lost some people, has gained some people. Some people are still corrupt, but some systems have improved, but it's moving. And in the other eye is a table with five rich fucks passing around gold, just maintaining nothing in the town has changed. And in fact, what you wind up seeing is people live a little bit longer and all you've managed to do is recreate reality, but life now lasts 30% longer. Oh, <laughs> so nothing's gotten better, but there's more of <laughs> but it. But the overall lifespan just caught up. <laughs> Things have gotten worse because on the ground level for the population, life is now just slightly longer, but is pretty much the same. Right. But those in power live infinitely. And if I may, I think that Celian kind of like um, turns their head again and we zoom in on like the village again into like an underground area where we see freedom fighters talking over a table. Uh, and like we see them in hushed tones whispering about like, overthrowing this corrupt system. Like we see a woman who's scarred, right? An eye is gone and she's saying like, my father died because what? He, he tried to kill one of the knights that the King's Guard sent in order to defend himself and his family. He only had two weeks left that killed him. No, we have to overthrow the God that came up with this system. We have to kill the God that thinks he's worthy of judging us of being good and evil. And the other freedom fighters are going like, yes. Every word of the sentence, you're watching the tally go down because there's an arbiter of true morality and every word speaking out is a word against true goodness. And as she speaks, she is not necessarily immediately, not in front of you, but you watch the numbers and you watch her die. For even, like, not even do anything, but just, like, thinking about it and, and talking about it? You snap a little bit to the next reality. The idea of, oh, well, I can just personally manage it. And you watch someone head to the market and offer a little bit under what a chicken costs in order to be able to feed their family. And immediately, you are flooded with a lifetime of experience who this person's family is, all of the good that their family has done, whether they're doing this because they care about their family or whether they're doing it because their family makes them happy. And so having their family around longer will actually make them happier. So is that really altruism? Because you don't want them there for them. You want them there for you. You know, if they are there for them, like if that still counts, then here's all the things that they're going to do. So is feeding them truly a good action? And there is just a long pause of just infinite omnipotence flooding through your head. It's impossible. I think he'd be a little dizzy. He would like stumble on his perch and have to steady himself. And he would just shake his head. How can you be so sure? It has happened before. Before the world as you know it, the gods sought to create their 
perfect Eden. Their immaculate garden, where there would be no pain, there would be no suffering, there would be no evil, there would only be good and happiness and joy. And in this Eden, there were no true choices. There were no true decisions. And the gods quickly realized that without pain, joy has no meaning. Without darkness, light does not exist. Why do you think the gods do not intervene directly in the affairs of mortals? We offer aid sometimes, we give visions, we seek to guide, but ultimately, the material plane is the plane of people. It is your right, it is your privilege, and it is your duty to make the world as you see fit with the time you have on it. He's so frustrated because he's wasted so much time in the pursuit of more. And in this moment, the weight of losing the time to seek the time is settling in. And just this anger floods through him and his little feathers go to his wand for a moment, just out of just, just out of anger. Like he was like, like if he could just hold you in place and force you to listen to him and you'll see his side. And then he just kind of sighs and he looks down. His little owl eyes droop and his little, his little feathers kind of splay out on the rock as he sits. But I've already wasted so much already. What am I to do? How am I to go on now? I think as you sit, the illusion shatters. Shatters and then dissipates like mist, and we are back at the peak of the mountain. And the Telian looks down at you at your sad little owl form and like floats down close to you, like so close that their snout is almost touching the top of your head. It was not a waste for you to study your whole life in pursuit of this lofty goal, but it appears you are at a crossroads, little one. Will you continue to reach for a vision that is just an illusion? Or will you do what is right with the time and the power you have now and remaining? He would just sigh, big, deep owl sigh. He'd look up at you with his big owl eyes. You are wise, and you have shown me truth. Is there perhaps another truth you could show me? Something to give me hope? I think Temperance lowers their snout and uh, presses it against your forehead. And as they do, I think images flash through your head of your life. It is your life. You are literally living your life like beat for beat for beat. And even though this contact lasts for just a second, it's like you're flung back into, like you live it all over again, right? Uh, so what do we see? Like what kind of a life have you led? always a little bit of a solitary life. He's always been so interested in questions. 
he has spent this life answering them and finding answers and discovering larger questions and this pursuit of this knowledge that has truly throughout his entire life given him joy. And in addition, when you start, it's small. It's your life and you see you asking questions, you see your parents answering them and watching you light up and you see the joy that brings them. And it goes forward, but by the time we hit second, third, fourth decades, you start to see the teachers who saw that same look and saw their knowledge passed on and you see the joy that brought them. And then you start to see the students who studied under you and the answers they found through you and the joy that brought them. And then you see the people who read what you wrote, who saw what you saw and use that to do even greater things. And you start to see the tree branch. You see the paths fork and all of the cascading joy over and over again, that living, that quiet, simple, joyful life passed on. I have a question for you as well, which is as you see the lives you've touched with your teachings and your academic pursuits, what road not taken, right? Like what massive regret do you have as you have like devoted yourself completely to this impossible dream? Yeah, there's none. That's, I guess, like every time there'd be a fork or every time there'd be a decision made, it's always the right one. Not the right one, but it's always the one that felt right or feels right or still at this point feels like that was the way to go. Like at no point was there any true real regret. There was just this sense of not having enough time. Then they break apart from the contact, right? And you see flowing around you the strings of fate. We see like ones lit up in red and gold from the paths you've taken and ones that are gray and transparent and ghostly from the ones you did not take, right? We see them like just coming and flowing out from you, branching off, connecting you to other parts of this world. And we, as you look at the Telian, you see that they are like, limbed in a parhelion like corona of these strings like like so many infinite strings branch off of this creature right there's too many to count they're like a, a literal celestial being i think the sense of that celestialness is like now hitting you and you 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 ascertain that they were not showing you their true form and they're only letting you see a, a, a small glimpse of it in this moment I cannot give you more time than you have been allotted on this place. But what I can give you is a second chance. And the Telian raises their head and like cocks it to the side and their antler catches on one of like the ghostly washed out strings and brings it toward you. And you see a version of yourself that's younger, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, like right as you were beginning to embark on this quest of like, kind of like obsessing over how do I get more time? How do I get more time? Like right at the beginning of this, right? I can give you these years back, my friend, for you to choose a different direction. 
he reaches, he can see it. It's exactly what he wants. And he reaches out for it. And as he's reaching out for it, he just kind of looks to the right and he sees what happened during those 15 years and everything that would be lost and everything that made him who he is now. And he's, and then he looks back and he sees through this person because this person is so much younger than he is and is so, so many fewer experiences. They seem so transparent, almost as transparent as the, as the thread that's being offered. And just as he's about to touch it, his little quivering feathered fingers stop short and he pulls them back and he chuckles. That is the second time I have hesitated. Perhaps there is good reason. Very well, little one. I am glad that you finally made the right choice. And the Tealin pulls away from you. And as you do, you see several of the strings that connect them to you light up. Right, there's this one strong one from this present moment, but then you see other strings flit into focus and you see swimming within these strings every other time you have come up to this peak and every other time you have made the choice to go back only for all those steps to lead you back to them. And all these strings fold into this, into the single one that like connects the two of you as strongly at the point and boosh, a bright flash of light. All of these moments of fate vanish. The mist thickens and then washes away. And you are left alone at the top of this mountain with nothing but, I think, a single jade stone in your palm to remember this encounter by. Thank you for joining us for the Tzelian. For more information about us, notes for each episode, and ways you can help support the show, head over to killeverymonster.com. If any of the ideas we've discussed on the show have sparked some of your own, tell us about it on Twitter at KEM Podcast. You'll find me at DJ Malenfant and Aram at Aram Vardian. For ad-free episodes, early releases, bonus episodes, print-ready maps, our new audio DMs notes, and my character sheets for each encounter, head over to patreon.com slash deadghostpro. Our intro theme and many of the sound effects you hear in the show were created by BattleBards. Check them out at battlebards.com. This episode was produced by Aram Vartian and Dylan Malenfant. I also did the editing. Our guest was Connie Chang. You can find them on Twitter at ByConnieChang. And if you are anything like me and all of that information just fell right out of your head, you'll find everything you need at KillEveryMonster.com. And we'll see you next time for Kill Every Every Monster. Monster. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.
The ancient mountainous deserts to the south of Faerun are the places where mortals first raised great temples and unlocked powerful secrets. A kingdom once fractured by infighting has been united under the iron claw of the red dragon, Chazar. The Great Lizard's quest for immortality has become an all-consuming obsession. His need for worshippers has set him on a path against the old gods of these lands, and they will not go quietly. An unlikely cabal of deities has banded together to undermine Jazar and ensure that their temples remain protected and active. They've traced tendrils of fate to preferred timelines, then selected five mortals who had the best chance of bringing those futures to fruition. You will take on the role of one of these chosen in Death to the Dragon King. Find out more about this Start Playing Games campaign and all of my other available games at aram.gay.